Tonight's reading is from the first book of Samuel, chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all of your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. This is the word of the Lord. Vivian knows something of being tired. How many years were you principal over at uh, Moore Assistant Principal? What was your title over there? For 20 years, yes, yes. You just retired last year, didn't you? Yes, so you know something about uh, that song that you sang so beautifully. One of the things that, uh, that, that I, I find when you start to dig into Dr. King's life a, a little more, something that I didn't know, uh, was just how, how tired he was, just how much he, he struggled, uh, just how much tension and conflict were going on, particularly in the, in the last days, both within the movement, within his team, uh, both from abroad and, and from the culture around him. Uh, his house was bombed. Death threats were a regular experience. And then, of course, uh, he struggled internally as well with uh, his own demons, his own challenges. It, it was just, just a, a terrible a struggle was going on in his own soul. And yet, through all of it, even through his death, uh, the work that God was, was purposed to accomplish through him continued. And I think of that as we open up and look at tonight's story in the book of Samuel about the rise of Saul to power, because it's, it's similar in a way, because this is a story about God fulfilling his purposes uh, in a situation where everything goes wrong. 
This is an inauguration story. Uh, it's about how Saul comes to power. You remember last week he's already been prophesied over and anointed privately by the prophet Samuel, but this is how he comes to power before the people of, of Israel, and almost nothing goes the way it's supposed to go. But at the end of the day, God's purposes are fulfilled through it all. I find that encouraging. I find that hopeful because so much of life is like that. So much of our lives are like that. We're not the people that we want to be, that we hope to be. The things around us fall apart. Relationships fall apart. Dreams are crashed. People get sick. And yet, somehow, through it all, God continues His purposes and plans. Evidently, we don't have to be perfect for God to use us. Everything doesn't have to go right and be set up around us for God to use us. Well, our story does begin on Saul's inauguration day, and they all come together at at Mizpah. And the word Mizpah in Hebrew means watchtower. Mizpah was a village about five miles north of Jerusalem. It was in the hill country, and it was on a major north-south road, and that made it a great gathering place for uh, both worship and and political strategy. Uh, There's actually been an archaeological dig there in the 1930s. They dug up most of it and and have identified it. It's It's a real town. This is real history. And so we can imagine this old prophet standing on a platform in a wide meadow. The hill country is is different than the Smokies. It's more like something you might see in New Mexico. Uh, These are not towering mountains. These would be things that you could walk on top of, and they did have some kind of sloping meadows. And, And so you can kind of envision thousands of these Israelites gathered around. Probably a kind of a podium would be erected, if uh, we look at the book of Ezra as an example, and Saul, or Samuel creakily walks up to the top of the podium and begins to speak. And, and you know, you think, what were the people like that day? Well, if you, if you were here last week, we looked at what had just happened. Uh, they had said, we need a king. They were afraid. They, Samuel had relented. And so there's probably a little bit of a spirit of optimism, of, of hope, of, of new beginnings, of, of safety, of finally God's going to give us a king. But the word that the old prophet brings is not a, a happy one. He says, God says, I brought Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you've rejected your God. And you've said, set a king over us. So this inaugural ceremony begins in, a, in sort of a downer, where, where the Lord says, you know, before I give you what you want, before we kind of get on with this thing, let me remind you one more time, this is not my will. You have turned to a king instead of me. I delivered you from Egypt, and I've delivered you from nations more recently, and still you reject me. And actually, the the most recent deliverance was just a few months before, or maybe a year or so, from the Philistines. And the Philistines had attacked Israel, killed 30,000 people. 
Israel uh, comes together, they cry out to God at Mizpah, at the same place, on the same mountain meadow, they had a worship service, and they said, oh God, save us. And here's what we read in chapter 7. As Samuel was offering the burnt offering, remember, this is the same place where they are right now, about a year before. After Samuel was offering the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines, threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called it Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. And Ebenezer, sometimes we sing a song about the Ebenezer. It's a Hebrew word that means stone of the helper. And, and God said to Samuel at that moment when, when he delivered them, he didn't want them to forget. So he says, Samuel, before they forget, put this big stone right here near where we worship. So every time people see this Ebenezer stone, they'll remember, they don't need a king. I'm the deliverer. And so now, just a year or so later, they're in the same worship space, and, and most likely they've all passed by the Ebenezer stone, the very stone that says by its name, God is our helper. And yet, they cry out for a king. Now, before we go on, I, I think it's worth pointing out that we all do this, that we've all got Ebenezer's. God's moved in your life in powerful ways. There are marks in your life. There are times in your life. There are, there are pivotal events in your life when you know that He provided for you, that He cared for you, that He's your deliverer. And yet, months later, when the, when the pressures come and the fears come, we forget all about it and go find our own king. It's, it's the heart of being a fallen human. Well, Israel is anxious, and we don't want to underplay this. Uh, They had reason to be. Israel became a monarchy in the late Bronze Age, and that's around 1100 B.C. It was a very troubled period in the ancient Near East. Civilization almost entirely collapsed in this period. Egypt had ruled uh, the area for many years, but at the time that we're reading about, Egypt had uh, fallen. Now you think, well, what does Egypt have to do with this story? Well, Egypt covered the whole, uh, whole ancient Near East at that time. When Egypt collapsed, a power vacuum was created in Palestine. And so Palestine became a war zone that everybody wanted. Now, Palestine does not have very many natural resources, but it's highly strategic militarily, because if you've ever looked at a map, if you want to get anywhere north to south or east to west, uh, you've got to go through Palestine, through Israel, through Canaan. And so all these warlords started descending upon Canaan to try to claim it for their own. One of the, the, the big, biggest and most effective were uh, the, the Philistines. And they settled along the coast uh, and began to wage war. So if you think, what's the, what was it like to live in Israel in this period? You might think of uh, the 6th century in Europe when uh, the Roman Empire was collapsing. You might think of uh, uh, Bosnia or Rwanda in the 90s. You might think of Somalia today. This was the kind of world that they were living in. And and remember, the Israelites were not warriors. The Israelites had been slaves in Egypt making bricks. And they were not trained to fight. So it's a very terrifying time uh, to, to be there. Well, Yahweh is going to give them a king 
but only after reminding him that they're trying to find their security in the wrong place. But what's so important about this is that God does not abandon them even though they waver in their faith. God does not put his foot down and walk away even though they are stumbling in their trust. And I think that's very good news for all of us because all of us are living at Mizpah tonight. We are all struggling with our faith. We all have an Ebenezer that we've forgotten. We go from spiritual highs to spiritual lows. We trust God on Sunday night. We forget Him on Tuesday morning. And yet God has not forgotten us. He still works. He's not done. So, after this opening prophetic word where God says, we're going to do this now, I'm going to accommodate to your fallenness and your weakness and your sin, but I want to remind you one more time, this is not my will, after that starts there. Then Samuel calls to the platform, uh, I guess, representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they, they do this thing with a lot. We don't know exactly what that was. There is a, uh, a couple verses in the Old Testament about the umum and the thumum, and the umum meant curse, the thumum meant uh, chosen, and they probably were dice, and Israel would make decisions by, by somehow rolling the dice, and if the umum came up, you were gone, and if the thumum came up, you're okay. Uh, don't, maybe Congress could do that. It'd be more efficient. Um, don't know exactly what it means. Well, Samuel invites the tribe to Benjamin over. He rolls it, and, and somehow they figure out, okay, of the tribe of Benjamin, remember there were 12 tribes, 12 sons of Israel, uh, he says it's the Matrite clan. So they roll the dice again. And then he says, you know, God has said that the king is not only going to come from Benjamin and from the Matrite clan, the, tr- the king is going to come from the family of Kish. And then he rolls again and Saul, the son of Kish, is chosen. And then if, if you talk about great moments of leadership in the Bible, this would not be it. But when they sought him, He couldn't be found. And they asked the Lord, uh, Lord, where is he? And the Lord says, and and I kind of imagine this as the Lord saying with kind of a sigh, um, uh, he's in the baggage. He's he's hiding. And I think of the scene, imagine the next inaugural, the next presidential inaugural, and the, the Supreme Court justice says, ladies and gentlemen, I now introduce you to the next president of the United States, and the bands play, and the jets fly overhead, and the banners wave, and the Secret Service guys check their sunglasses, and, and nobody steps up to the podium. And silence settles over the crowd like a blanket, and a whisper goes out, where, where is the president? Where is he? And then one of the Secret Servicemen walks up to the Vice President and says, uh, Sir, um, the President um, has locked himself in the coat room, uh, and he says he won't come out. <laughs> That's how the first King of Israel came to power. And then we read one of the classic leadership lines in the whole Bible in verse 23, Then they ran and took him from there. <laughs> <laughs> Or I love the King James, they ran and fetched him. (laughs) 
And I, I have a sick sense of humor, and I imagine what Monty Python would do with this scene. Uh, we know he's a tall guy, so you can imagine this guy hiding behind the baggage, but he's too tall, so his head's popping out. And so the leaders are going and dragging him. He says, no, I don't want this. And they say, you're the king. And they shove him in front of the people, and, and the people say, long live the king. Now, if you were here last week and you studied, one of the things that make this odd is that he already knew he was king. And Samuel had anointed him as king. The Holy Spirit had equipped him to be king. And yet he hides in the bag the baggage. Why? Well, the text doesn't tell us, but, but maybe, maybe he's forgotten who he is. Maybe he's forgotten who God is. Maybe he's afraid... Maybe he, he liked the donkey business and had a, had, a, had a plan for it, and all of a sudden it's all thrown out. Maybe he's overwhelmed by the needs of the demands of the job. Maybe he feels underqualified. Well, all we know is that the old prophet Samuel stands up after they drag him to the podium and says, and I kind of imagine him sounding like the announcer in that movie, The Hunger Games, uh, ah, yes, there's... No one like him. It's an odd scene, but I think we've all played the role ourselves. Um, Haven't you ever been afraid of your calling? I mean, God has revealed it to you. He's confirmed it to you. People have prayed over you. There's been signs. And yet, when the moment of summons comes... You've just stayed in the baggage. Haven't we all been overwhelmed by the responsibility demanded of us? Don't you ever feel that way as a parent, as a boss, a student, a caregiver to an aging loved one? Don't you ever just feel like, if I have one, I I remember walking home one night and, and one of my dogs came up and was just like, hey, I need you, and and, and, you know, the whole pet thing. And I just walked right by. I said, if one more living thing needs anything from me, I'm going to shoot it. <laughs> Don't you ever just feel like everybody needs something from you? Haven't you ever wanted to escape, to run, to avoid the narrow road of the cross? Haven't you ever felt underqualified? powerless, like you don't know what you're doing, like you don't have the strength to do this. I think all of those things might have been going through Saul's mind. And yet, God uses him. Next week, we'll see that for a period, Saul was a great leader. He rose to the challenge. He has another encounter with the Holy Spirit next week. He, he protects Israel from a holocaust next week. And so the same is true for us. You know, even if you're hiding in the baggage tonight, even if you're running from your calling, even if you're burying your talents, even if you feel overwhelmed, under-equipped, God's still going to use you. Because He's God, and that's what He does. There are no perfect leaders in the Bible. That's why I love the Bible. They're all a mess. David's a mess too. Solomon's a mess. The only one that's not a mess is Jesus. And he was God. 
you know, have you done something tonight, friend, that you feel has disqualified you from God's future? You feel like you're kind of permanently on plan B. Oh, beloved. We're all on plan B. We missed plan A when we were born. As the old country preacher said, the Lord uses crooked sticks to make straight licks. Well, then we read, Samuel told the people the rights and duties of kingship, and he wrote them in a book. He laid it before the Lord. That's an interesting little scene. And I think we learned something about God there. He he has condescended to work with them in their fallenness and anxiety and fear and brokenness, and he sets to work writing a constitution. He didn't want a monarchy, but that's what they want. That's what they have. And so he says, all right, if you're going to have it, we're going to do it my way. And so Samuel writes out a constitution that shows that the king will serve under the Torah and under the covenant. And I, Isn't that how God works? He humbles himself amazingly, Wherever we are, he comes in and helps us move towards righteousness. Wherever we are. And you might be here tonight thinking, you know, I have messed this thing up so badly that there's there's just no way I can get it back. He doesn't want me back. Oh, no, he does. Wherever you are tonight, whatever you've done, no matter how badly you've messed this thing up, he will come into it and move you towards righteousness. That's what he does. Saul went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. That's kind of a sweet part of the story. It seems that God has put on the heart of some of the the, the men around Saul to support him. And, And it's a beautiful picture of true friendship, because these guys probably saw the whole baggage thing. Um... I mean, they're probably there. I remember years ago marrying a, a young guy. He was a wonderful guy. And the, the wedding was way off at this country club. And uh, we'd done premarital counseling and all this stuff. And well, we're driving from the, uh, the church to the reception the night before. He gets this look. <laughs> and I look over and I thought, oh, no. <laughs> And he says, uh, I, I'm making a mistake. He says, I can't do this. Now, I knew this guy. He was a good guy. He's just kind of hiding in the baggage. I'd walked with him for years. I knew this was the right thing. And I was able to just say, uh, would you shut up? <laughs> and I took him to the country club. Um, they're happily married. Uh, but I, I think that in a way is, is kind of what these, these circles of friends are like I mean they've been there in the car when you wanted to bail out in your marriage they, they've seen you hiding in the baggage they were there when you goofed up your marriage they, they were there when you did some dumb things in college they were, they were there when you went bankrupt they were there when you said something stupid at the, at the board meeting they, they know that part of you and they're still walking with you. And, and I think that's, you know, also when we talk about, do you have your people? 
That's kind of what we mean. It's people that know you at your worst, but believe in you in your best, and keep calling that best out of you. So it's a beautiful thing what God has given Saul here. But all is not well. Some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. And the Hebrew word for despised is more of a technical term for refusing to give loyalty to a leader. The present wasn't like a birthday gift, it was a tribute. It was something in that culture that you did to acknowledge that you were submissive to this king. So what you've got here within minutes of Saul's inauguration is a, a, a division. Uh, you've got relational conflict. You've got relational tension five minutes after he's inaugurated. There's no halo, no honeymoon. And it foreshadows, of course, what's going to happen through the rest of his ministry. But I personally find that, in an odd way, hopeful. Because if you try to do anything for God, other than sit there, you'll have relational problems. And, and a big part of doing things for God is working through them. Beloved, you're always going to have relational problems. There's going to be problems with your family. There's going to be problems at work. There's going to be problems in your church, and problems in your gym, problems on your baseball team, problems in your community, problems in your neighborhood. It's just the way it is in a fallen world. Don't believe the lie that God cannot use you unless all of your relationships are perfect. All you're responsible for is to move, turn your chairs, as we say, to move towards reconciling as much as you can, but you've got to understand they're never all going to be lined up right. It's like, remember that game, you know, you bop, 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 bop. You're going to be, fix this relationship with your kid, and then you're going to have one with your boss. You're never going to get it right, and if you wait until you get them all right, you're never going to do anything. And over the years as a pastor, this is always been thrown uh, up against all leaders, I guess, of every kind, especially pastors, because we care so much about relationships. And it always goes like this. Whenever I'm in conflict with somebody, you've got to solve this problem, because if you don't, God won't bless you and he'll curse the church. And, of course, I'm thinking, i got a problem with you. You don't know about the other 18 problems I've got over here that I'm trying to worry about. Give me time. It can become kind of a toxic, shaming myth that Satan uses that if all your relationships aren't perfect, God will never use you. If God waited for that, you know, life would be like a Cormac McCarthy novel. <laughs> the road, just pfft, no hope. No hope. He has to use broken people, and that means we have broken relationships. Well, I thought of a variety of ways to, to kind of wrap this up tonight, and I'm not sure which one's right, but I have been reading. I've been, I've been keeping my Sabbath again, for the record. And uh, one of the things I did is I got this wonderful biography of Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalist, uh, by George Marsden, and a big fat thing. And I sat by the fireplace all day Thursday and, and worked through it. And I found myself feeling two things tremendous admiration for his brilliance and his zeal and his passion and his love and his theology. But I also found myself feeling, I don't think I'd want to be in his church. And after 300 pages of his sermons and his intensity and his passion and his calls to holiness, 
I began to read little sub-stories like this during one of the great revivals where he was preaching so powerfully and many were being saved. He, he had this belief that not only could you, did you need to respond to Christ, but you needed to give evidence of your conversion. You needed to somehow be able to demonstrate that you truly had been saved by showing and proving in conversation with him that your heart was different. And if you couldn't do that, you couldn't take communion. And, and it created this, this culture where everyone was always looking inward to see if they were truly saved. And, and at one point during the height of the Great Awakening, uh, a guy in Edwards' congregation slit his throat. He just couldn't handle it anymore. And for some reason, I, I've, I've thought about that all week, and I thought, well, what does that have to do with this, this sermon? And, and, and uh, I'm not sure that it does, but I think that sometimes in even the best spiritual climates with the best teaching and the best theology and the best intentions, there can be this subtle, quiet, toxic, false truth that comes across at the same time that says, if you are not perfect, God won't use you. Now, none of us would say we believe that. We know that's not the gospel. Edwards wouldn't have said that. But it's the feel I get from his entire ministry. And, you know, we talk a lot about the basement at All Souls and how we believe things in our, in our heads, but then there's a subconscious, there's a, a hidden realm where we have these, these distorted beliefs that really affect our character. I think this is one of those basement beliefs that somehow seeps in through our good theology, maybe through, through my preaching or whatever it is, and the belief is, if you are not perfect, God won't use you. And I think it just does some, some real damage to us. And it's not true. Dr. King was a brave man, a courageous man. He never hid in the baggage, but he wasn't perfect. It's far from perfect. But God used him. In my case, 40 years living that way ultimately just destroyed my stomach. That's, that's where a lot of us internalize our, our tension and our stress and our anxiety is in our gut. And, and, and I, I don't know why I've been thinking about that as I prepared this sermon this week, other than that I keep talking to members of our congregation that struggle with stomach problems like, like I do. And maybe what I would, would suggest to you tonight is that if, you, if you're kind of just in a, in a nodding mode here, yep, good stuff, I uh, wonder who won the, the Denver game, um, Would you pay attention to, your, to two things, to your body and to your sleep? That's the other thing I've been hearing a lot lately from you. One is a lot of problems with your stomach, and the other is I don't sleep. Pay attention to your sleep, to what you're thinking about, to what you're dreaming about. Pay attention to your gut. Pray about it. And see if the Lord might be showing you that you believe the lie that you have to be perfect for God to use you. Let's pray.